Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Welcome back to the Wine Tech Insiders Podcast. Today, we're talking about if algorithms are the answer, are review slanted, and we're going to dive into wine investment funds. Back, we have our insiders. We have Lori from Outshinery. Hi, everyone. Nick from Wine Owners. <laughs> Hello. And Jonathan from Bottle Books. Hi again. <laughs> so, um, great article about if algorithms might not be the answer. Um, it's a topic that we keep going back to. Uh, recently, there was the kind of failure of picks um, that was looking to help people find wines. And there have, there's a long history of uh, wine tech companies that are searching for this. It seems to be a kind of mysterious holy grail um, that uh, a lot of wine tech founders look to find, a lot of people look to find the solution to. Um, and they make some great points uh, in this article, or some interesting points, let's say. Um, uh, the, the first point, Laurie, is that these, um, these algorithms really favor mass-produced wines because they're available yeah. in more places, they can get more reviews, um, and that um, the smaller wines can easily slip through um, and, and, and not be found. Um, yeah. Yeah. What did you think about this article? What do you, What did you think about that point? I mean, like at first, it, it seems like obvious, but it's also like not publicly um, acknowledged, right? Like it's just like, oh, this one has two hundred reviews versus this one has two reviews. Um, that way, like the I don't like um, how do you call it in English? Sorry, I'm just back from France, and now my English is struggling. Uh, but as aggregate, sorry, like makes a lot more sense. And it's just um, even though like on the surface, um, this kind of services pretend or aim to democratize, you know, the review and make it available and in the power of the hand of consumers and very visible, um, obviously it skews the number, like a, a bottle that is distributed across all states uh, will by definition have more reviews, good or bad, mind you, like it's, you know, like it's like the, the reverse of the medal uh, versus like, you know, a local winery that may have a distribution only in California or California and Oregon, let's say. Um, so what I would be curious is not only like how does a review um, like reflect the actual reality, but, you know, then what are the other algorithm do after, like, you know, um, is a wine that has more reviews good or bad prompted higher up in the search hierarchy because um it's got more reviews i would imagine so and therefore like it feeds itself even more so so it's sense of democratizing but also i don't have like the easy answer on how to solve it law of numbers jonathan <laughs> is this also um, a data problem that there just isn't always great data from small wineries and the the big guys have have data out there or um, I, I would tend to go more towards the, um, uh, towards the article's uh, point that, um, algorithms, well, I don't know if algorithms don't have something to offer tech or whether people try to make too much out of algorithms and I mean, all the search websites, online shops, they're all using algorithms to help include, uh, increase the relevancy of the search results, but a few of them say, you know, trying to do like taste-based taste recommendations. They're just trying to make sure that, 
you know, the, pr the product that they recommend, you're more like, like they're trying to get you to put one more thing in your shopping basket. And I think that's one like Vivino. Yes. They talk about the algorithms, but ultimately they're trying to sell you some wine and they're going to fill your inbox full of, you know, two or three emails a day offering wine, you know, discounted wines. And that's, that's, that's why they're successful is they're, they're all about selling wine and using their algorithms to sell wine. Um, and you can talk about the fuzzy feet, fuzziness about, or the warm, fuzzy feeling, oh, I'm helping people discover new wines. But at the end of the day, they don't really care which wine you drink. They just want you to put something in the basket and hit buy. So I think businesses that just focus on um, the taste-driven ones, it, it, there is a graveyard of those out there that have tried and they weren't able, I mean, what's the uplift of a, of a good recommendation? You know, what's, what's the additional revenue to somebody for that? And this is not doubling your revenue. This is like incremental revenue on top of something you're already doing. And this just makes you a little bit bet a little bit better um, than your neighbor. But if you're not selling something uh, and you're not optimizing, like what's, what's the point, what are you, what are you actually trying to achieve with that algorithm? And from a business sense, Nick, they compared um, uh, wine wine algorithms to um, online personality tests. Uh, is that a fair comparison, or um, what do you think about that analogy? I'm not sure that personality tests and preferences uh, are necessarily comparable, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm not sure that um, you know just because I am a certain personality type uh, that I'm not necessarily going to enjoy a rather broad range of, of wines. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I think Jonathan's point is well made. And, and you know, just because um, thousands of people on Amazon have cats that like a particular tin of cat food doesn't mean my cat's going to like it. Um, um, even though she may share many traits with those other cats, such as having full paws and, you know, speaking in a certain tone. So, um, yeah, I think, I think Jonathan's points were very well made actually, which is, which is that, you know, the voice of the crowd, of course, has been talked about a lot, isn't it? The voice, voice of the crowd over the voice of the professional and whether that, you know, is more meaningful and whether that delivers you know, better outcomes for consumers. Uh, and, you know, and I think the answer is it's still sort of somewhat hit and miss. Sometimes it can be amazing and sometimes it can be disappointing because actually um, uh, it's all really, really rather superficial. Uh, whereas I do agree with you, David, insofar as it's absolutely a data, I think it is absolutely a data issue. And I think that somebody in one of the articles that you um, shared with us as part of our prep was was talking about the problem with wine being that that you know the characteristic of being a particularly peachy character is perhaps less important than some of the other less easy to express elements around a wine such as its intensity or its mouthfeel or whatever it may be um, so so I think if you, if you accept the premise that everybody, generally speaking, likes a wide range of wines and has a palate that enjoys, um, you know, a, a different experience depending on, on, on the occasion, um, I, I still quite like uh, the approach of, of 
essentially ingesting uh, uh, customer history uh, uh, or, 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 or wines that customers know that they have previously enjoyed and using that as the basis for being able to compare those wines to a database of uh, wine information that's been captured at a much more elemental level than the sort of emotional kind of descriptives that that you know a a, a typical consumer will share um and to that end i think you know in previous in previous um podcasts we've talked about the power of ai uh, and of course you know ai is only useful if you feed it sufficient data and it has sufficient data underpinning it in order for it to be able to um make some sensible suggestions arising out out of out of crunching that data so that that would be my perspective but i, I would even like the um i would go back also to um like what you're doing with uh with um recipes laurie like depending on how you're like nick you're saying obviously that what you enjoy drinking depends on the occasion and one of those occasions is what are you eating so one thing that could be just as influential about whether you would like that wine is do you like the meal that's being suggested uh with it so when a winemaker um like customers of outshinery um are able to choose um a, a menu to go with their mm -hmm. wine that they can put in all of their in the boxes it's um that's whether or not you would have picked that wine based on an algorithm somebody paired food with it that would highlight mm -hmm. the aspects of it so it's like it's there's multiple ways to, get to enjoyment and I would go even further, you know, Jonathan, like, so like food for sure, but even I would say like the occasion, sometimes you get attached to wine and to use it tastes great because there is a memory associated to it, like a, a moment or just like, maybe it's not like the best uh, Pinot Noir, but that was an incredible Thanksgiving with over some friends and from no one, I'm just assigning my own points, because um, it tastes great to me because of that, uh, you know, memory or something like that, like the, the experience of wine. Uh, and maybe the turkey was burnt, and that's actually why it <laughs> tasted so good, right? Like, 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 like there's like, there's, there's also like all like this levels, and I think that's what makes wine also so interesting as a consumer product, um, because it has so much of this personal attachment and relevance. and sometimes like very uh, elevated and conscious and i would say in the eye or rather like taste buds of the average consumer it's very subconscious like you don't you don't necessarily like can really pinpoint and and actively rate it or something like that and i don't know how the ai algorithm you know can take that into consideration if we ourselves can't put a finger on it and this article was written by Esther Mobley, who uh, works for the San Francisco Chronicle, and she also wrote about um, the fall of picks and got a very interesting comment from a reader. Um, fair or not fair, what do you guys think? The reader wrote, the real reason wine tech keeps failing is because there is nothing tech can offer wine. <laughs> very <Ouch>. aggressive statement. <laughs> Laurie, what do you think? Does Is there is what's the truth in that statement i mean there's got to be something obviously we don't agree but um there's got to be something interesting or truthful or something that will tell i don't know there's some there's got to be something to learn from that reaction like yeah like just like first like a knee-jerk reaction but like you said to me there's a nuggets of truth as well maybe like 
there a saying like brute technology, like trying to to fit, you know, like a a round piece into like a square peg or whatever is like the English saying. Like, um, yeah, like it's it definitely like made me like food for thought or wine for thought. It's just maybe like the regular brute technology, like we're gonna fit everything into a box and it's either a zero or a one, you know. Um, may not may not work for wine not that way maybe like more creative way i don't know like i'm 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 the least technology like developer i'm curious to see what like jonathan would have to say to this actually um so i think that i might if i were to um try and parse what the person <laughs> said i would maybe draw it into two different i would see at least in two different categories b to c and b to b I think B2C is um, is challenging, um, especially like to go further than what you would typically have in an online uh, shop anyway, straight off the shelf from like Shopify or WooCommerce or whatever, um, uh, versus the back office, the B2B, where there we know we all know that there is a lot of manual work going on behind the scenes, which other industries have digitalized. Um, and I think that's where a lot of our businesses are focused. Um, like, I don't think any of us really are focused on B to C. We are helping our customers do what they want to do for their end consumers, but we're, we tend to be focused on the B2B because there's just so much analog that's still going on in the wine industry compared to, to others. So, um, yeah, maybe it's uh, maybe I'm splitting hairs um, in a self-serving way, but um, <laughs> um, I think I think there is a nugget of truth to it. I would I would kind of say you know the more that there are services that encourage people to discover wine and enjoy wine, particularly younger people, the better. And um, it, there is no doubt that there are more and more young people walking around with apps of one kind or another. Uh, looking for some kind of assistance and they may or may not work but I, I I'm not entirely sure that matters an awful lot I suspect the comment about wine tech having nothing to offer wine may have been made and I'm not saying it was but it could have possibly been made by someone who is actually pretty knowledgeable about wine and and for that person and for people like them I'm sure this in terms of, you know, AI or algorithms, then yes, probably there isn't an awful lot that, that those can give them. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't have value for a, a much wider audience. One of the it, things it, that, it, oh, sorry, gotcha. I was going to say maybe it also has something um, also again to do with price point. I think we've talked about like that a few times is about what what is the actual target audience of a particular uh, product and when you're um when you're buying wine at like for five ten fifteen euros and you can get quite a good wine the risk is is low but if you're somewhere where to get a good wine you're putting down at least 30 40 50 dollars um the risk is higher and so the cost of making a mistake is is a lot higher so you like there are and, perhaps and, certain and, markets and, and the variables a greater yeah. right i mean if you're yeah. spending 50 bucks on a bottle of wine you've got the variables about whether it's actually drinkable at all right now or whether it's something <laughs> that's going to be drinkable in 10 years time and we yes. all start somewhere don't we you know when i when <laughs> i started drinking wine i was buying 
bottles at £1.59 from the local supermarket and it was Romanian wine. Uh, I think there might have been a little bit of Hungarian wine and it was before, you know, before the wall came down when they were all part of, you know, the Soviet Empire as was. Um, so, you know, we all start somewhere. I don't drink that stuff anymore, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it wasn't all right. <laughs> well, Nick, you touched upon um, another theme that keeps coming back to the podcast, which is uh, wine reviewers, um, the point system awards, all of that, um, and how um, consumers are moving away from that. Um, an interesting article by Jason Wilson um, diving into kind of the subtleties behind the scenes of some of this. Now, he's a wine writer. He's been on, you know, the in, on the side of this, but he's also been on the inside of this. Um, and um, without naming names, um, he claims that a major wine brand pays about 25,000 a year to a certain influential wine publication, not for advertising, but instead to ensure that our clients' wines are reviewed and to make sure poorly reviewed wines aren't listed. Not quite buying a certain rating, but certainly um, uh, claims of some kind of dishonesty in, in the rating system in the background of how it's going. Um, Laurie, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, what's your reaction? Well, it's uh, interesting. It's like it's a bit like fuzzy as well. Like no names are, you know, given. Like is it like how how much is true or untrue? Um, and it's like um, sneaky, right? Like I think like to me, what's even more interesting is how to not get the one that you know are poor or poorer like not to get them uh, reviewed or listed. Like that's just like an interesting approach uh, that I guess would serve. But I think that's something that Nick brought up, um, I think earlier, it's also like how much weight uh, does this really have and what type of wine are we talking? Are we talking the commercial wine? Are we talking um, the more like investment, fine wine, um, for the commercial wine? I don't know how it matters. Like it's, yeah, it's it's not great, but like, like how does it influence it? Like, is it like money into the wind? I think I would love to know a bit more like the, the parameters, like which one are we talking about? What's the distribution um, and price point? Nick, maybe this is a waste of money. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Hands I was going to say, I wonder, I wonder who this mysterious brand owner is. <laughs> uh, or, or rather, from what budget this mysterious brand owner is is exactly. is is, uh, is taking this from, and you know, uh, and perhaps it's from their key influencer marketing budget. But then, <laughs> but then, but then it's it's all sort of terribly secretive. I, I think I think Laurie's right. Right, it's it's very difficult to comment when someone's throwing casting aspersions that are. Um, unidentifiable and unprovable, um, and uh, I can certainly, I can certainly imagine that there are, you know, there is there is promotional money spent by brands within, you know, but within organisations like supermarkets and distributors, and and I guess the supermarkets themselves may well have 
um, you know, magazines that cover all kinds of stuff, including wine and whatever else. So, so I can imagine that taking place within that environment. And I don't know to what extent this 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 allegedly influential wine magazine um, is, you know, is is a a um, a mainstream. Um, you know, critic with a a um, a good reputation, or or or, or whether it's it, or whether it whether it's a a somewhat more mass market publication um, yeah. where you know, advertorial and influence and all of those things, uh, you know, tend to be much more commonplace. So, so I'm I'm going to assume it isn't any of the wine. Um, uh, publications that that we would sort of consider as sort of central to the, the fine wine market, um, and I I'm going to I'm going to guess that it's it's more it's more brand orientated and more mass market orientated, and and in that case maybe that makes sense. Jonathan, how how important um, uh, from a data perspective are are reviews uh, to the industry? I mean. Behind the scenes, is it really um, is it is it still of a high importance? I think it depends on your target market. Um, I think I would also probably lump in awards into this as as well. Um, I mean, we uh, know some wineries that target the Chinese market that they can't get enough medals to put onto their tasting sheets or onto their bottles. Like they don't stop at three, they don't stop at twenty. They would love to have thirty medals. On the exact same wine, because the more medals you have in China, the more prestigious uh, your wine, even if they all just say the exact same thing. <laughs> so there is sort of a like badge of honor, and there is serious money spent on this as well. Um, and I mean, awards. I mean, they everybody for some reason. I mean, on one hand, you have the awards. Everybody accepts that you pay an award uh, to enter your wine into the competition. Um, they don't say which wines didn't get an award. Um, so when you sit when on a wine critic, you know, are we expecting them to tell us which wines they don't like? Um, um, and at the end of the day, everybody has to pay the rent. So, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a completely independent critic, you know, not everybody is going to be able to set up a site like Jancis, uh, um, Robinson or, um, you know, wine advocate. I mean, there's, there are independent people out there and, that are have a good taste and they're not going to recommend they're not going to recommend wines they don't uh, like one of the um most i think um I remember one winemaker telling me about a, a wine writer in new zealand um all the winemakers would go to him to write their tasting note um because he just had a great way of writing tasting notes um he would also give it a rating and if you had a a higher than a certain rating, then you would automatically appear on his site. And if you had a, I think like a three out of five, then it was up to the winery to decide whether they wanted their hit the wine and the rating to be on his site. But you paid him for a service to write your tasting note and you got a rating kind of with it. But there was definitely money changing hands, but people had, you know, Kiwi wines have better tasting notes on their on their back label because of uh, because of him so I think it's it's 
yeah, but I'm not somebody who has a subscription to Wine Advocate or this is not what I read in my spare time. Uh, um, I'm in wine, but this is not one of the one of the mags that I read. So um, I might I might have a bit of a skewed uh, or a, a, a perspective that somebody who is a bit more focused on the space might not share. Uh, Nick, you also you mentioned something really interesting, which was influencers. And, and over the past few weeks, there's also been some news from, you know, we, we tend to think like, okay, when, when we slag off influencers, we tend to think, okay, someone's got a thousand followers and, you know, takes pictures of themselves next to fountains. And, and sometimes it's with a bottle of wine Could and they're just looking to whatever. But um, there, there was a, uh, an influencer, uh, the, the number, he, the number one YouTube, uh, personality called Mr. Beast um, opened a burger restaurant and in a mall and the mall was full <laughs> full with people Kim Kardashian just raised an investment fund and these these hyper hyper influencers have over all the social platforms they have a billion followers some of these <laughs> so I there is some thought that this next level of influencer, it's not just going to be Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie fighting over a winery in France and, you know, adding a little cachet that the way that they're moving into markets, uh, Logan Paul just started this energy drink thing and he, he is selling millions of this. I mean, you know, and so you can, when you're talking about essentially exchangeable consumer goods, you I mean, if we're going to talk about sort of bulk wine and and that kind of thing. Um, there, and I don't think it's quite hit. It's sort of just hitting other industries, um, but it's going to come, and and that could also kind of start to blow out the the importance of other things because they have a they have a reach that they can hit for free in a way. You know, absolutely. They don't have to pay per click. They don't have to pay. Uh, twenty five thousand to some magazine to maybe it's, put it's some the, review or whatever. It's the new PR that they have extraordinary reach. To your point, and yeah. they reach an audience of millions and millions and millions of people. And um, you know, they they have they have they have um, you know they have a message that resonates um, very widely out out of all of their connections with all of their connections connections and so it goes so it's it's very networked it's very viral uh very relevant i suspect for you know large production brands and for you know um the parts of the wine market that are that are creating product out of you know bulk wine and you know a little bit of salt and pepper thrown in to boot um very different market um but, but yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see that explode um, when it happens, as it surely will. Laurie, do, do you have anything anything popping up in, in your world about influencers or do you, do you notice anything um, obviously you're on the marketing side? Really, I think it's still pretty elusive to like smaller brands. And um, I know like there's like some... Um, not study research, but some aim to do like more like micro influencer. One influencer right now that I'm really quite admiring is um, Andre Mack. Um, that is originally like he's a sommelier by training and he's this really awesome um, black 
person that speaks about wine like nobody else does. And um, right now he's in partnership with Bon Appetit. Uh, he does both like a YouTube version that has, um, I'm not sure if it's millions with an S, but over 1 million. Uh, and um, and then also like now a podcast that I listen to uh, on Spotify. Uh, again, like lots and lots of reviews. And what's interesting is trying to find the right balance between like educating um, his audience, but educating in a, um, like in a fun way, like he uses a lot of emojis and expression, but also like encourage people to read, you know, who is the importer, like reading what the importer is behind, like a wine will tell you a lot potentially about the quality of the liquid in it, like things that are a little bit like more like knowledgeable, but also some of his most popular, you know, full circle, some of his most popular um, reviews are actually celebrity wines, right? It's like a self-fulfilling, like it will try like the Snoop Dogg one, it will try like the Martha, Martha Stewart, like just, so it's just kind of like feeding into this and like going blind and just like giving his honest opinion, but also what's fun and it's just really, really interesting because it comes from a very knowledgeable place. Like he knows a lot, but he's not, um, it's very democratic and, and funny to boot, um, to listen to and to see him taste. Yeah. So that would be my, my influencer uh, of choice that I would be on the watch out uh, for. I'm very curious to see what he comes up with next. Jonathan, who's, who's your favorite influencer? That's a difficult question. I'm not sure I have one. <laughs> I figured you, you weren't. You didn't. You, you... I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that uh, type of marketing reaches me very frequently. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on social media either, so that uh, um, already cuts out a few influencer channels. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's the Netflix algorithm. That's my one of the. <laughs> That's right, an influencer. <laughs> let's move to um, wine investment funds. Um, uh, there's been recently two U.S. wine investment funds that have been set up. Uh, most of the funds are in, in London or the U.K. Um, and um, um, there are not many in the world, but um, there is a view that uh, a wine investment fund is a fund that um, is a solid investment Um even if it doesn't grow that much, um, it's a sort of a safer um, um, investment. Although the LiveX bid to offer ratio dropped um, from January to June from 1.8 to 0.8. So there is some instability. There's global economic instability that hasn't fully wrecked havoc in say the fine art or the fine wine market um but um it, it might it might nick i think you're um the insider to go to uh what is your opinion on on wine investment funds i, I think we can also dive deeper on other podcasts but i think it's mm -hmm. a good introduction mm -hmm. yeah i mean i, I think there are the there are many flavors of wine fund, and I think the two that you mentioned um, exemplify that. So, so it's, whereas Vint effectively builds blue chip collections that then people take a slice of, um, uh, so it's a collective uh, and it's pretty pure play and they're very, very narrow in the sorts of um, 
wines that they put into those funds. Um, and then, you know, I, I, it depends what your motivation is. You'd be drawn to something like Vint, I guess, as a pure play investment. And, and then to your point, you know, it's, it's it pays you money, it takes you chances. And, um, you know, it's going to depend on where you are in the cycle. It's going to depend on macroeconomics. It's going to depend on the extent to which the wine market correlates with other main you know regulated markets like equities in the past it always used to then sort of since sort of the mid noughties it stopped doing so when sort of china came into play and and now frankly who knows because you know it, we may well be heading into a slightly more normal world in that sort of post um, period where china was such a, a, an extreme influence on the wine market and then on the other hand you've got um uh, Vinovest, which is kind of, you know, very small scale. It's, um, you know, very big numbers acquired through social media, lots of young people. Um, and I think if your motivation as a, as a young person is to, you know, have a bit of fun, explore it, and maybe, you know, um, you, you know be in a position where you might fancy drinking it in a year's time, that's one thing. Um, uh, but if you think that this is going to give you a outperforming return on investment compared to other categories, then 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 you know you you, you might want to consider at what level you, you you are going in at because you know the, the 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 wine world, like a lot of other areas, like a lot of our other asset classes, tends to polarize quite a lot. You know between between the very the very scarce the very sought after and of course because it's very scarce by definition it can't be in everybody's everybody's collections um uh, and and um you know those categories that that are hot for whatever reason uh, and where maybe there is a bit more liquidity such as champagne and then everything in the middle kind of gets stuck really um and and the reason it gets stuck is because it was designed to be drunk primarily um, so, you know, and then, you know, what is a collector? Is a collector somebody who is obsessive compulsive and loves it? I get that. I can relate to that pretty closely. Um, or in which case, actually, you're building a collection. And if it happens, you know, to be a collection that enables you to drink at, at a level that otherwise you would never have ever been able to dream of, then, then happy days. Um, but if you're going in as a pure play, as a pure play investor, then you'll be doing it because you've probably got an awful lot of investments tied up elsewhere, and this is fun and it's fringe and it's um, uh, discretionary. So there you go, Jonathan. Are you any of these? Have you uh, ever invested in a fund? Have you even bought a bottle of wine to let age? Or um, I haven't done any of the. Um any investment funds I'm, I'm rather invested in bottle books um <laughs> but the um but in in terms of um of investment classes you know it i can i can definitely appreciate the appeal of it relative to other potential investments and in the you know the last 15 years of a largely bull market um you know everything was going up so you know, what would you invest in that wasn't really going to appreciate over the period of this time? Uh, um, 
to speak broadly. Um, but yeah, when things get a bit more challenging, um, I can appreciate that people pull back to um, investments that are more classical and that are a bit more tangible, um, perhaps than just purely scarcity-based um, um, investments, or at least the number of investors that are looking at more risky investments or less tangible investments, probably I, I could appreciate that those might uh, might drop. Great. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. That was covering algorithms, slanted reviews, and wine investment funds. We're going to hopefully have a guest again um, in a few weeks, and um, we'll see you then. Perfect. Thank, Thank you so much, David. Bye, everyone.